prophet, not a priest, but also a king. I say prophet because he is privileged by God to communicate the word of God. And it's part of his request in uh, Psalm 51. In verse 1, you have, as we've said, his summary request. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your mercy, wipe, wipe clean my transgressions. Summary statement, summary request, which will give you the flavor, the kind of the, the theme for the entire book. Gracious is the general statement. Be gracious to me. Wipe clean my transgressions is the specific statement. Be gracious is a general request, but in the specifics of my defilement what has made me dirty. And I think wipe clean is a good translation for what's constantly in view is that David is defiled. He's dirty from his personal sin. He requests cleansing, as we've seen, very thoroughly wash or clean me from my iniquity, my sin, my guilt, from my sin, cleanse me. We said this is another center-seeking structure as we've looked at a couple times now. The sin is now focal. And the desire for cleaning and washing is on the outside of his statement, but still in the imperative, still making these urgent requests. Do it, help me, save me, clean me. Now, your English order will often disagree with my translation because in English, order really matters for clarity, for style, and at times for meaning. But it's good to put it back into its original order to see what the, what the poet is doing. And again, he inverts it. Very thoroughly wash me from my iniquity and from my sin cleanse me means that iniquity and sin are being focused on. Let me apply something here, right here. If I'm right, that the inversion of the second part of the first line into the first part of the second line, sin, if that's the focus of David in that verse, then do I have a basis for saying at times we need to focus on our personal sin? Is that hard to hear? Now, some of you have a tendency to overwallow, to overthink, to overdrive, to forget God's promises of forgiveness and cleansing, and to rehash and rebring up and rebother yourself with what you have shocked yourself with. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a a good straightforward look at self, a self-evaluation. I think you should do this every day. Short accounts. Look at where you are and what you're doing and your thought life. And we're gonna see he's asking for inward secret recesses of the soul work by God. Do something inside me. This isn't a big public profession. I mean, millions, billions of people are now privy to this private request but in the moment in the prayer this is this is me and you lord and i need you to do a work here but the focus is on my personal sin as we've saw as we've seen he doesn't invert in verse three for my transgressions i myself know and my sin transgressions and sin is, is before me continually now some of you may know what i'm doing with the colors and some of you may not and so I'll assume that it'd be helpful for me to remind you what this is about. Now, Hebrew poetry, like English poetry, rhymes. 
I mean, the good English poetry, Longfellow and stuff like that. Edgar Allan Poe liked to rhyme. The good stuff, the, the stuff that doesn't rhyme, you know, I, I don't, doesn't get me. I don't get it. We don't need to, to talk to each other. But, but Robert Frost, yeah, I like how he would do it because he would rhyme. And, but in, in Hebrew, you're not rhyming in words, sounds. You're rhyming in thoughts and meanings. And so in a Hebrew poem, every thought will be said twice unless there's something else that's happening that's also stylistic, but that's the general thing. So when you read a Hebrew poem, like settle in, I'm gonna hear every thought two times. And sometimes they'll be in an opposite, like this is good and this is bad. Jesus loves me. I am weak, but he is strong, right? That's, that's, that's a poetic, inver- that's a poetic uh, parallelism. It's called... Uh, antithetical parallelism but this is how hebrew poetry works is you have two two lines and they'll be compared i got i have to confess that i learned this my first semester in seminary i'd never heard this in my life and it changed my life because a huge chunk of the old testament is, is poetic and so now it seems like we're just repeating ourselves a lot now I'm looking for specific intentional comparisons that are being made between these, these phrases. And um, this is why I think I went to seminary. So I could say that tonight. So that you would be equipped to say, hey, let's do a little careful examination of our Bibles as we're reading our Hebrew poetry. Because certain comparisons are being made and it's important. Now, if I, my goal is just theology, my goal is mere theology, well, well give me the, just give me the, the, the takeaway. If that's what we're really after, then I think we're gonna miss a lot of what God wants us to enjoy, the thought process. Thinking along with David. I mean, this is really awesome. 3,000 years ago, David's writing these things, dealing with agony, and, and the person he doesn't want to be and asking God to make him the person God wants him to be. In verse three, you have cognizance of sin. There's a theological statement here. In the story of David and Bathsheba and, and the prophet Nathan, you have this very interesting work where David seems to have uh, disregarded what he had done. It's easy to imagine how he could do that if you think about it. He's the king. He's done a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Most of it's pretty good. And somehow he's missed that this one thing you did with this one family where you destroyed untold numbers of lives that were touched by Uriah. Hurt, I mean, hurt his parents, hurt his family, his siblings. Destroyed the integrity of your office. I mean, so many things we could bring about and, and charge against David for the ramifications of his adultery and murder. And that's what he did. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband when he wasn't able to cover it up, to take her as his wife. They didn't lose the baby. She had the baby 
and then the baby died. It's a horrible chapter in the Bible. And he's, he's taking us through it poetically here. I'm aware. There was a time in David's life, as we learned from Nathan having to tell him the story. Now, there was a little ewe lamb that this poor man had, and there was a rich man. I should just tell you all the story, but I'm not ready to do that right now. When David is confronted by Nathan, and Nathan says, you are the man that I'm telling you about in this story, David's like, oh, all of a sudden awareness. When I read that story, I'm always taken with how, why didn't you get it? We're all just throwing up over how awful this is, David, and you don't even know he's talking about you. Well, it's, it's to show you that this verse really says something. I'm aware of my sin. And if you aren't in a frame of mind, if I'm not in a frame of mind like Isaiah, where if God shows up right now and I'm not starkly aware of the contrast between perfect, infinite righteousness and sinfulness, there's probably a problem in my lack of perspective about myself. David can't even see it until Nathan says, okay, so you know how you want to kill the guy that that stole the little ewe lamb or you want to punish him? That's you. You did that. (gasps) Now I know. David, now he's, God has brought him to an awareness. Now here's my thought on this theologically. God's going to let you see what he needs you to see. Don't do this thing where you, you won't look, where you fight God. Let him show you. When God says, look at this, however he says, however in your life you have to become aware, don't fight the awareness. Oh, I don't want to look at that because it just gets louder. Behold, I stand at the door and knock is the Lord Jesus to the church of Laodicea. I don't think that's an evangelism verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I don't want him to knock <laughs> on me in increasing loudness and, and hardness in his knocking. I want to just respond. Yes, sir. Okay, what, what do you need to show me? And he does. And so this is why, uh, again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, don't, uh, don't come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Judge yourself. If we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. We're looking for this. We're opening our hearts constantly to this same attitude. David had to be cracked open a little bit. You don't want to be like that. The point of the problem between David and God is his sin, and it's really about God's righteousness. Against you, you alone have sinned. The evil in your sight I've done. Consequently, you're righteous when you speak, and you're pure when you judge. Now, this is uh, an interesting statement, given the fact that he has committed adultery, possibly um, forcing Bathsheba with, her, with his office. Like, how can she say no to the king? Is, it doesn't talk about that, but we're not really sure what all the personal sins against people there are involved. Uriah, again, his family. When your son is killed in the service, okay, that's one thing. When the king murders him to cover up his corruption in the service, that's what do I do with that as a mother, as a father. You know what? How do you not hate the world and the king, especially? You got to deal with your own hatred of the king now for what he's done 
And it wasn't a secret. The world knew eventually. How many people did David wrong here? And look what he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I think this is a riddle. Now here are two ways. The Bible just contradicted itself. Unbeliever says, see, he says he only sinned against God, but really he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and their families and everybody in the whole country, right? That's the way the unbeliever reads it is contradiction, but that's stupid. (laughs) What's he saying? Against you, you alone have I sinned. When we know he sinned against a lot of people, why does he say it this way? Have you thought about that? Has that verse ever jumped out at you? It's because in comparison to the transgression of God's perfect righteousness, we little babies stepping on each other in the playpen is a relatively less significant thing. In fact, it's infinitely less significant. (laughs) The transgression of God's righteousness is so much more important. This is a common thing you have in Hebrew. We're told in uh, in. Genesis 2, 24, a very similar comparison. For this reason, a a man will abandon, forsake. (laughs) You could translate that word. Forsake his father and mother, cleave unto his wife. That didn't mean that you actually left your parents in the dust. In fact, in that culture, you built onto your dad's house when you brought your wife home. Very often, young men would. So what that means is compared to the relationship with your parents, Jesus tells them same idea, a Hebrew common thought, Semitic thought here. Jesus says you've got to hate your parents. Remember the, the discipleship discourses? You don't hate your mom and dad? Wasn't he the one as God that said, honor your father and mother? And then he challenged the Pharisees on not honoring their fathers and mothers. So why does he say hate your parents? comparatively again, compared to the love you have with God, the relationship you have with God, the relationship you have with your parents, which is wonderful, is it pales so much in comparison. So you could say it's like hatred. That's what's going on here. Against you and you alone if I sin is for us to remember that me being okay with you doesn't make me okay. There was a book in the 70s, some of you might remember, I'm Okay, You're Okay, an idea of counseling and um, uh, uh, psychotherapy, is that we're, so we're relational, so we just have to make sure we're okay with other people. Theologians had a field day with that back then. I don't know if they could handle it today. Me getting along with my fellow man is at times a helpful indicator of some things, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm right with God. Being at odds with people does not indicate that I'm right with God either. (laughs) You could go too far with that. But the point is that sin is about God. My personal sin is about God primarily. And yet in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus says, if you have an offering, if you have a sin offering and and you uh, remember your, your brother has something against you, leave your offering, go fix it with him, and then come back to the offering. So does that contradict this, that against you and you alone have I sinned? No, the transgression towards your brother is something God has against you and you need to go solve it for God's sake. It's about God. It's always about God. Evil in your sight I've done. Consequently, you're righteous when you speak and you're pure when you judge. Now, this is the exact order 
of the Hebrew statement that, that we have in the Masoretic text, Codex Leningradensis, and for the most part, with some help from some other sources. But in the manuscripts we have, this is the order in Hebrew. I wonder if you can see what colors are going to jump out at you if I flip the slide. Let's look at line A against you. You alone have I sinned. The evil in your sight I have done. Well, this is a hard one because you have evil here and sin here. It looks like an inversion. Maybe it is. I don't think it is, but maybe it is. Righteous when you speak, pure when you judge. That one's easy, right? Righteous and pure, speak and judge. That's the echo. But up here, against you, you alone, evil in your sight. Character, perspective. I've sinned, I've done. I think it looks like this. I have sinned, I've done. And he does save the verb to the end, and that's not always the case. But poetry, it's, it, there's no rules. It's just do what, <clears throat> do what you want. I want you to see that in this verse, he does something fairly complex in the poetic rhyming and the poetic structure, I think. The first chunk up here, it's what David's done. This piece is what God has done, what God does. I act, you act. You see that interchange? It's really straightforward. It's right there. And you couldn't see the greater contrast. I'm a sinner. I've done this. You're righteous. You make your judgment. You speak. And so there's a contrast between David and God that's being established, an opposition that we saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Another thing I want to point out is that when David addresses his actions, it's sin, it's the things he's done. When he addresses God's actions, it's God's speaking, it's God's communication, it's God's judgment. God speaks and things happen like the earth is created. Let there be light. And it is the word of God when God speaks, you see. When, um, when your dad loves you enough to correct you, to discipline you, because he needs you to learn this lesson, it's an act of love. And the child whose heart is tuned to receive real love that, that provides what I need can appreciate that kind of love. <clears throat> but David's a sinner and God's righteous. And then he talks about where did it come from? How did I get to be this way? I was born this way. Again, we have politicians saying, uh, well, if you don't like the, my lifestyle of, of wanton, abominable sin, then your problem is with my Creator and not with me. Blame God for sexual sin. Well, David goes back to his mom. Behold, in iniquity or sin I was brought forth, and sin my mother conceived me. This is not a, an evasion of responsibility in David's culture. He's saying, I'm cursed. I'm to be rejected. I ought to be out of the assembly because I'm born sinful. But everybody is. See, everyone can say, I was born of woman. I'm a sinner. 
born of man and woman. And so I was conceived in iniquity. Now I have a professor I love very much who loved to bring this verse out and say, see, David was an illegitimate child because he was born in sin. And this is a reference to David's parentage. And that's why David's not included in Jesse's sons, 1 Samuel 16 and so forth. But I, I think that's not at all what he's doing in this poem. What he's saying is that I was born a sinner. Doesn't mean that the act of conception was sinful. It's that it resulted in a sinful human being. <laughs> the, the, the parallel is very clear in sin, in sin, or in iniquity and sin, two different words for sin, but they mean the same thing. I was brought forth and my mother conceived me. Interestingly, the Hebrew language knows the difference between conception and birth. But in verse 6, behold, if I want a relationship with God, it's going to be inside. You have desired chafetz or delighted in truth. Truth you have desired in the dark or secret. We translate that the secret recesses or it's a very mysterious word by design. And I think he means your innermost being. You desire truth in the parts of me that I don't show everyone. You want truth at the very core of my being. He uses this almost hopox, this one-time word for darkness or, or secret. And in silence or secrecy, wisdom you'll make me know. In the very inner person, that secret place. Now, do you notice the inversion? Some of you're righteously like, pick up the pace, Pastor Dave. Um, <laughs> but watch this. In the secret place here, in the, in the dark, secret, innermost self, and in secret and silence. You see what happened? He switched the order again because he's probably focusing on that inner place, that inner darkness, secret. Dark isn't used here to mean bad or sinful or sinister, except that it's a reference to us in our inner person and there is a sinfulness there. But it's not dark because it's sinful, it's dark because it's secret. And that's what he's talking about. Now, this is awesome to reflect on because you can get it all right as far as I can tell. I can watch you and be like, hey, you hold your, you have the right facial expression. Hey, how you doing? Fine, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. You, you, you doing your work well? Oh, yes, just fine. Does the boss think so? Yes, the boss is pleased. I can go check with the boss. Oh, yes, doing great. But inside, death. Is it possible? yes. It's the story of American churchianity over the last hundred years. Yeah, you can be outwardly righteous, but that's not David's goal is to look righteous. He wants to be from the inner man inside out. And that's verse six. Now, outside that focal area of the inner man is truth and wisdom. Truth this word emmet, emmet, truth. That's where we get the word. Uh, uh, it's related to the word to believe or to be uh, faithful, depending on the stem and for aman. It's also related to when Jesus says, amen, amen, I tell you. Amen is this word, emmet, uh, truth, belief, strength, faith, something that is sturdy in this case. And Wisdom, 
one of our old favorites, chokhmah. This word means skill. I think it's a good word to summarize how it's, what it means however it's being used. You can have skill at anything, but the skill that the Bible generally talks about in the Old Testament is, and the New Sophia, is the skill to be pleasing to God, the skill of walking before God in a way that pleases Him. That's what the Proverbs are about, wisdom. That's why it begins with the knowledge of God. But this is, the, this is verse 6 about real rapport with God. I'm okay, you're okay works if you're a people pleaser. If you, wanna, if you want other people to like you or something, works fine. Oh, I'm sensitive. I want people to like me. Everybody has that to some degree or another. But if you want a relationship with God, then verse 6 tells you to quit worrying about those things for a minute against you and you alone have I sinned. Let's go for a relationship with God. And that means it's all, it's all on display, right? The whole person is laid open before God. The Word of God can cut you open in Hebrews chapter 4 as a two-edged sword. It could slice you open and discern the soul from the spirit like bones from marrow. So, a real relationship with God, if you really want it, is it's going to be on the basis of truth. And it's going to be God training you to know wisdom, but it's going to be inside out. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me more than snow, I will be white. Which means I'll be whiter than snow, but I put it in Hebrew order. Purify me, wash me. I'll be clean. Wash me more than snow. I'll be white. Being white as snow is obviously parallel to being clean. Being purified with hyssop and washing are parallel ideas. And now is the question of the hard thing to interpret in this verse. What does it mean to purify me with hyssop? It's a, some might say, and this is the first one I don't think it is, it's a scratchy plant and you have to beat someone with it and then they're pure. This is the, the, the horrible word repentance brought out of penance from Latin to to pay a penalty, where repentance means change of mind, where it's metanoia, metanoia, change of mind in the Greek, but we have this stupid thing where we think it means to pay a penalty because of the Latin Vulgate, big mistake. Well, I don't think it means to to flagellate yourself with hyssop. Then there's the YouTube version. Sometimes when I have, have a fun thing to run down, I'll go check out, what does YouTube think about hyssop? Anybody have any idea what 2019 YouTube world thinks about the word hyssop for purification? Essential oils. <laughs> all, God's, all God's children laughed lovingly. Hey, I love a good smelling room as much as anyone else. It's great. I, I love to smell good smells. And the skunks are starting to come out and I, I don't like that. And so <laughs> glad for the, the thing. But Hyssop oil is not what he's talking about. Oh, you know, just like the Bible says, if you, get, if you do essential oils with hyssop, then that's something, no, that's not what it, hyssop is the applicator, this is my interpretation, hyssop is the applicator of the blood in the covenant ceremonies. You would put hyssop on the blood, the blood of the lentils with hyssop in the Passover. You, the covenant ceremony, the sprinkling of blood is with hyssop. It's a good natural paintbrush that God said use this to go do the covenant. And so it's the, it's, the, it's the applicator of blood, and I think that's what he's talking about. 
that what's purified Israel is going to purify him. And that's why he'll be washed. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing us from all sin. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we walk in the light as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. I think that's about not you and me, that's me and God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, see it's still talking about God, the Father, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses in an ongoing way, present tense, cleanses us from all sin. And so I think he's talking about what really cleans us up when he says, purify me with hyssop. He doesn't say blood, but I think that's his reference there. And it's definitely on your mind if you, if you say with hyssop in a poetic context that has all this other connotation, if you're uh, living on this side of, uh, on David's side of Exodus and Leviticus. And then this is awesome. It doesn't say it in the, in the imperative. It just says it in the imperfect, which I've translated as the imperfect. You will make me hear joy and jubilation. This is his expectation. My Bible translates it in the imperative, make me hear joy and jubilation, but I think it's probably more explicit. This is what I expect. They will shout in celebration the bones you've broken. Uh-oh. Joy and jubilation, shouting and celebration. He's inverted his thought there. And the focus is on rejoicing. What God does is he makes me hear and he has broken the bones. But in the middle is this enjoyment of joy, of God, of his grace. Now there is the alternative to this where God corrects and then we stiffen our necks and say no. We pull a Pharaoh and say I won't respond to the creator. But David says the bones you've broken are going to rejoice. They're going to celebrate. They're going to shout in celebration. I think of the old 80s Toyota commercials where they would jump up in the air and then they'd take a picture. Yeah, some of you remember that. Some of you lived through it and have chosen to forget it and others have no idea. But, but there's just this jubilation, shouting for joy in celebration is the idea. And it's what David anticipates because of the grace of God, which he began with according to your loving kindness and your mercy. Hide your face from my sins and all my iniquities wipe clean. Sin and iniquity is focal again. One of these is relational in the sense of, uh, of God looking at it, of his countenance being, you know, looking on this thing that makes me shamed, ashamed. And then, then the wiping clean as the, alter, as the parallel thought. Hide your face doesn't mean pretend like it's not there. It means let that not be the focus of our relationship because I can't think of anything else. So let this be done. Let me get past it. It's a great prayer. It's a great request. Pure heart created me, O God, and a steadfast spirit renew within me. A great, a great place to end. The parallel of the pure heart and the steadfast spirit. I think the heart is the core of the inner immaterial man, woman, the person that, that you are. It's not the physical pump, I don't believe, anywhere. I think it's always the core of your being. I'll test it if I have a heart transplant. Don't need a new work, <laughs> okay, <laughs> on my heart because it's not talk. It's the physical 
body parts are used to describe immaterial realities throughout the Old and New Testaments. And this, is, this would be lend credence to that. The steadfast spirit is parallel to the clean heart, to the pure heart. One of these seems to be, purity seems to be what you get after you remove defilement. Is that okay? Pure heart? I, I need you to purify my heart. Tahor, pure. One of these seems to be what stabilizes you to continue in purity. Steadfast spirit, do you see that? I, I think that's, they're, they're not identical thoughts, they're rhymes, they're similar. One of these starts me off and the other keeps me there. Get me, set me back up, clean me off, dust me off, and then let me walk as I should. But God's gonna have to do it. He's gonna have to create, bara. He's going to have to renew, chadash. And these are imperatives, back to the imperative. Well, um, where we've ended tonight is where we began in verse one. The divine intervention that David asks for is going to have to be something God himself is going to do. What does David bring to the table? What's the What's the takeaway? you want to be like David you don't want to have to pray this prayer for the reason David prayed it but we all need to look at ourselves and deal with our sin so let's apply it to ourselves what did David bring to the table gross iniquity personal sin unawareness of it all the things that he said crushing need right from that constant awareness but what else does he bring to this he confesses he says I've done it he makes his requests. What's he bringing to the table? He wants God to do it. He wants this. He's not saying, I don't really want it, but do it. He's saying, with all my heart, this is what I want. I think it matters. I think there's a consistency he's calling for, the scriptures are calling for, where I don't just want the benefits, I want what brings the benefits, which is a relationship with you. So I'm asking for this recovery, for this work. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is the desire of King David in the aftermath of his failure. My prayer for you is that this is your constant desire. This is what I want. This is who I want to be. It's a great summary of the character that we all want for our children to have. We want to surround ourselves with people who desire this for God to do something in us that changes us. It's an awesome summary statement. And the challenge is, do you want this? Can you pray this prayer in sincerity? I mean, meaning what you're saying. There's very helpfully in David an awareness that God alone can do it, and he needs it. Father, we want this. We want this work by your Spirit in us continually. We're not in the same status as King David for many reasons, Father. But we are in very similar situation in that we're not resurrected. We have a sin nature. We submit ourselves tragically to its lusts from time to time. 
And Father, every time we break fellowship with you through quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit, we need this work. We need you to work in us, to renew us. And I pray for that work as much as we need it, Father. And I do that because I see here in the scriptures it's your desire, and that prayer will always be answered. Father, let us not fake it. Let us be real and consistent. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.